0: And so just to come to Siebold, if, if that's OK, through via Kafka and the uncanny, um, Siebold, you quote Siebold um, in, your, in your wonderful essay, I'm not going to talk too much about the Holocaust, if that's OK. Because I, I, I just I want to keep it on, well, things that I. <laughs> let's
1: keep it up and lie. <laughs> let's,
0: <laughs> so. let's keep it. Well, it is an essay about the Holocaust, isn't it? Or a yeah. Siebold essay. So, um, but he's, he, he has this phrase. Siebold, um in relation to what you've just said about Kafka, and this our need for a continuous self, our need for to refuse this idea that there is a separation between here and now, this lie that we tell ourselves. Zeebald says, and you quote this in your essay on him, the ghosts of repetition that haunt me, the laws governing the return of the past, the ghosts of repetition that haunt me. What, what do you think he means by this?
1: Well, he loves this image. He uses it very early Mm -hmm. on uh, in The Emigrants. Uh, I think it's in The Emigrants. Mm -hmm. He's kind of addicted to the idea of um, this kind of alpine guide who's a friend of this character, Henry Selwyn, Mm -hmm. who kind of is killed on a glacier. And and then years later, his corpse kind of comes out (laughs) of the end of the glacier. But what an extraordinary image for Zabel to mm-hmm. have happened upon in the late 1990s, mm-hmm. given the progress of, uh, of global heating in the last 20 years and the melting of the very alpine glasses in that way. Or you can think of it, of course, in terms of the return of the repressed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how much we sit in orderly rows mm-hmm. in a conversation like this and we observe the proprieties mm-hmm. and the niceties. We're a seething cauldron. <laughs> of anger and libido that is you know, <laughs> <laughs> desperate to be released um, mm-hmm. and I, I, not so much maybe in Zabel's case mm-hmm. but I think what he's mm-hmm. mostly haunted by and you know uh, um, Nabokov mm-hmm. writes about this in, in Speak Memory his extraordinary memoir where he sort of says the past is so much bigger than mm-hmm. the future mm-hmm. it's so much more capacious mm-hmm. than the future and I think that that's I think that for Zabel, there are two things going on here. One is his, his realization of the capaciousness of the past, mm. particularly when you grasp the nettle of who you are. A- and secondly, his terrible desire to change the past mm. in, in a very fundamental way, which is to banish his own happy childhood mm. uh, in, yes. in, uh, in, in Bavaria, Bavaria. during Becoming the war. Bavaria. You know, He says somewhere, the, the absolute uncanniness mm-hmm. is that while he was walking through you know flower decked meadows mm-hmm. with his beloved grandfather, uh, the Holocaust was in full tilt, and, and his father was kind of implicated in it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that that's you know what he's referring to with this, these endless mm-hmm. returns. he got himself stuck in a cycle. I have to say. I think Zabel's case is unusual as a writer. There's a lot of contingencies there. Mm. I mean, one of the things is him being in England. You know, and, he, and I think you know, in that essay, I talk a lot about the idea that, that he was the good German. Mm. Uh, and in a way, the English-speaking world, because he's not big in Germany mm. at all. I mean, one of the, one of the first reviews of, of uh, Austerlitz described it as a um, uh, uh, staghorn button prose. You know, I, I don't read German, but German-reading friends of mine say, yeah, actually, in German, there's a sickliness to the prose that just isn't there in the English version at all. And I think the English-speaking world decided, and particularly England, decided, since we're the best, you know, we're, we're, we're the land of the Panglossians, and we're the best of all possible worlds, <laughs> of course, we have nurtured the great, ge- the best German Mm. writer. Well, to he write.
0: had a professorship at East Anglia, didn't he? he University of East Anglia. At, yeah, professor and German, then Manchester yeah. before that. So yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, he was here for a long time. Mm. I mean, he came here in his early 20s mm. and died here mm. in his 50s. I mean, he... Uh, and, and I think we love that mm. because we're like, we're top nation, right? <laughs> so <laughs> everything we do is... Like, even in decline, mm. even our, our post-imperial phase is better <laughs> than other people's post-imperial <laughs> phase, have you noticed? <laughs> everything we do is great <laughs> failure, we do failure
0: <laughs> so I'm try- I agree with that So, w- but there's something there's something, no disagreement on that one there's something still I haven't got to the bottom with with my reading of zebald um, and I'm not as well versed in Zebold as you are um, Will. I have read Austerlitz, but I, all I can remember it really is the atmosphere of train stations and um, lots of anxiety around moving on and jolting and moving about and um, you know, feeling alienated in some very vague sense. But rereading, I read Vertigo recently, um, and then I read uh, The Emigrants, and I can't help but think a lot of it is untrue and he's covering stuff up. And perhaps those photographs that he, which he's well known for, he's a, he's sort of a documentary writer, he uses stills and photographs as kind of frozen form of cinema, as though somehow that is more of a kind of truth telling than the words, that the the, docu- the photographic document is more truthful than, than the written word. Whereas I actually think do- photographs are inherently, form- they tell lies because they are so orchestrated in their forms of frozen mummified theater. But there's something awkward and difficult going on there something to do with concealment and I think I said to you in the email I sent to you today or yesterday that I am it, it made me anxious I had to keep closing that book because it's stuffed with violence mm. I, pending violence there's a trigger about to go off everywhere mm. and I feel as though he's interrogating in emigrants he interrogate there are four characters and the first one is Dr. Henry Selwyn mm. and then I think the second then there's his This terribly sad story about his teacher, Mm. Paul um, Betrayer. Dreadfully sad story. Mm, Committed suicide.
1: Um, Well, think about the Holocaust for a minute. I know you don't want to. (laughs) But think about it. You know, I grew up in the hampstead Garden suburb in North London in the 1960s. There was a woman at the end of the road who wore a tightly belted gabardine Mm. coat, grey gabardine Mm. coat, and had obviously dyed hair cut in a savage little bob. Mm-hmm. and my histrionic mother, and, and never cut her hedges. The privet had gone mad. She lived there alone. You mm-hmm. uh, know, The paint was cracked on the window frames. My, mo- I'm sure this was horseshit because my mother was a histrionic person, mm-hmm. but mum always used to say, she survived the camps, mm-hmm. and now she won't cut the hedges, mm-hmm. because she thinks that if the Nazis come again, they'll pass by like the angel of death. Mm-hmm. There's no that was in the 1960s the holocaust had only been 20 yeah. years before i've been reading my mother left this extraordinary trove mm-hmm. of intimate diaries when she died that mm-hmm. i found under her bed in 1988 when she was dying mm-hmm. in, in the royal ear hospital on gower street not i hasten to add a veneer problem mm-hmm. uh, it was just it was the only bed they could find of her mm-hmm. for her and I've been reading uh, her diaries and started in the late '40s. She never mentions the Holocaust. She never mentions mm. it. Extraordinary. Mm-hmm. She never mentions it. I think she thinks she passes. Uh, her her husband at the time is a kind of is a gentile academic. Mm-hmm. They're in upstate New York. He's teaching at Cornell in Ithaca. Mm-hmm. I think Mum thinks she passes. The fool. She doesn't want to be Jewish, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and who would want to mm-hmm. be Jewish? But you know, you say, "Oh, I don't want to talk about the Holocaust." Of course, you don't want to talk mm-hmm. about the Holocaust. Why would you want to talk about mm-hmm. the Holocaust? It's too disturbing, yes. and the historiography that kind of, and which Zabel makes a powerful intervention mm-hmm. into that surrounds. You know, on the one hand, you have Daniel Goldhagen's book, mm-hmm. which you can obtain in this fine bookstore after the event, mm-hmm. if you've got enough money left after. <laughs> I after I pushed my product, don't you? Um, in fact, buy the Goldhagen rather than mine. It's more important, mm-hmm. you know. And, and Goldhagen's book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, says that the Germans were match fit for the mm-hmm. Holocaust. They'd been in training since mm-hmm. Martin Luther, mm-hmm. you know, de, you know, popularized the image of the Juden-Sau. They were absolutely up for it. Okay, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, and then you have a book like Christopher Browning's Ordinary Men, which is about the Einsatzgruppen that went into Lithuania in the opening months of, of the war uh, and began the final solution. Uh, and, and as the title suggests, Browning's point is these were like ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And not only that, when some of the men who, uh, and you remember, the, the Holocaust was handled clumsily mm-hmm. to begin mm-hmm. with. you know, People were just rounded up and shot. Mm-hmm. Hard work. A lot of Jews. Very mm-hmm. difficult to shoot them all. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the guys who were doing it were quite sickened by mm-hmm. the work mm-hmm. because you know and they and they were they transferred out of mm-hmm. the ra- mm-hmm. they were allowed to. They were allowed to say, actually mm-hmm. I'm finding it rather hard mm-hmm. shooting babies mm-hmm. and children. Can I go and do something else? Mm-hmm. You know, so this is not a kind of you know, and Siebold stands against Goldhagen. Mm-hmm. He stands against German exceptionalism and I mm-hmm. stand with him. Mm-hmm. You know, the Germans are a pretty shitty bunch, but then so are the English. So is everyone. (laughs) Yeah? And and there is no nation, race, Mm. ethnicity that is incapable of genocide in this world. No one.
0: And you say that's what Zabel's argument is, really, don't you? Yes.
1: Well, not only that, it's much stronger. And why he's a really great writer, Mm. oddly enough, setting aside the prose, setting aside everything else, is because he identifies ecocide. Mm. He sees the Holocaust as an extreme and specialised form of the ecocide mm. that, that mm. the human species mm. is enacting on mm. the planet at the moment. Yes. And you know, you get this again and again. In a marvelous book, *The Rings of Saturn*, mm. his description mm. of the kind of North Sea herring fishery and the way in which mm. you know humans laid waste to fish. Mm. You know. Um, mm.
0: Yeah, and he's a nature writer as well in many ways, isn't he, quite simply put. He's a nature writer, so it's natural waste, it's the destruction of nature that he's really writing about in many ways.
1: uh, There's this magnificent long poem, uh, um, Against Nature, After Nature, that he wrote in in the 1990s. I mean, is prescience a good thing in a writer? Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. actually. It's Mm -hmm. quite interesting. I mean, you don't get it from politicians, religious leaders... It seemed to go in a sort of mm-hmm. circularity. But there are some writers who are, have an extraordinary strike rate when it comes to my mentor, J.G. Ballard, mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. saw what was coming, mm-hmm. and Zabort's another example.
0: Mm-hmm. And Will, just to come back to um, reading, um, you said you say in several of your essays, not just one, but several of the essays that are purely about reading, that you read, um, you, you gobble small units of reading, and you will often have several a, a plethora of texts that you're consuming at once and you talk about um right reading rather as a kind of snacking i don't actually i'm not sure if i believe that actually <laughs> i think
1: you're that you. Lie.
0: well not lying no you're not lying but i i i that's to me sounds like you're a glib reader and i don't think that's right um i so can you just can you just give us a visual on how you read day to day what is your reading
1: life like it's like that it's like it's like You know, those horrible, you know, if you stump up for a first-class ticket on the train, they bring you a snack box. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, extraordinary thing. Sort of got hummus (laughs) made out of chemicals and a a weird sort of spork that you...
0: (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, you have also said to me that you don't pass an opinion on a text until you've read the whole thing. So no, nor yeah. do
1: I ever um, show a book I'm writing to anyone until I've finished mm. the draw. Mm. I don't mm. never show work in mm. progress. Mm. It's like kind of you w- if you were gestating, you wouldn't want somebody to kind of cut a hole in, in <laughs> Well, actually, you do. You want somebody to give you an ultrasound, I suppose. And maybe it mirrors the. Cocteau said all, all real artists are, are hermaphrodites who create through parthenogenesis, mm. through mm. mm. self insemination in that way and I, I I'm very kind of secretive about mm-hmm. this process I go into a kind of I <laughs> like to keep it um, I wouldn't pass judgment on a text until I'd read all mm-hmm. of it that's mm-hmm. absolutely true or else mm-hmm. I just give up reading it. Mm-hmm. I mean it, I, I mean I've, that being said I've never for example I haven't reviewed fiction mm-hmm. for 30 years mm-hmm. but 20, I haven't reviewed in the mainstream press I, I used to book review quite a bit but mm-hmm. always non-fiction. Mm-hmm. nonfiction review fiction mm-hmm. Partly because it's an entree into the colossal circle jerk log rolling of the literary world, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which you're only too uh, well aware of, you know. Who knows who? Who gave a prize to so and so? Who sits on that committee? Who can give you a job? Who, it's all rigged <laughs> from beginning to end, you know, and I, and I, I sensed that very early on and mm-hmm. thought, I don't want to be part of that. I don't feel under, you know, li- life really is too short mm-hmm. to feel. I, I leave plays. I mean, I don't actually go to plays, but if I did, I'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to see, you know, sort of, Cressida, who grew up in North London and went to Lambda, pretend to be Cressida. It's like, I don't <laughs> fucking care. <laughs> Give it a rest, girl. You know? And And in the same token, a lot of so-called literary fiction mm-hmm. is like that sure. as well. So,
0: c- so, Will, just um, how do you keep concentration? How do we become not distracted from our, our gadgets? How do we, you know, go under the surface? How do we plunge? How do we sink? How, we go, how do we go deep down? How do we become an immersive reader and not a distracted, blinking, you know, anxious?
1: Yeah, no, reader. it's a fair point, and, uh, and I'm not sure I can help. I mean, I mm-hmm. suppose the paradox is that my paradigm for how to read is writing. Yeah. Because I can't write if mm-hmm. I'm distracted, and mm-hmm. I have been draconian. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I couldn't have written all of those books if I wasn't absolutely ruthless. And and one of the aspects of ruthlessness was, soon after 2004 and the inception of wireless broadband, I felt a strange, and I write about it in the collection. Mm-hmm. I felt a strange desire to write on a manual typewriter. Mm-hmm. Rather than on, mm-hmm. uh, i would always I've written on word processors before. I wasn't going back to the typewriter. I wrote all of my early books. My mother died in 1988, and bless her, she was a bit of an early adopter, and she left me an m mm-hmm. PCW9512, <laughs> and I wrote my first three books on that machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then around two, then then I had a better computer, and I was a relatively early web adopter. I had an uh, uh, I had an online connection mm-hmm. in '95. Do you remember? The dial-up connection. <laughs> <laughs> That'll put you off <laughs> looking for photos of having sex with donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a frictionless experience. You know, and, and So what does
0: the Olivetti give you, or the typewriter, that beautiful typewriter? I've still
1: got my mother's Olivetti letter yeah. at 22, which she would have been writing on in the mid-50s around the time she was pretending the holocaust hadn't happened um Where do you get ribbons? I get them <laughs> from Brian I'll tell you his name afterwards um, <laughs> it's it's online it's co- it's called the, the 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 computer ribbon store and he's mm-hmm. he, Brian Rothwell just put in Brian Rothwell <laughs> typewriter ribbons and he's such like one man gig He's somewhere up like in Wigan and you can and uh, I'll call him up and say, have you still got the ribbons, Brian? I go, "Yeah, well, I'll <laughs> send them down to you." <laughs> it's, gonna, it's still happening. The problem is the typewriter engineer, and there's an essay about him, Shalom Simons, my, who was the last typewriter engineer in, in London. And, and Shalom, you know, I, I used to sort of basically get hold of my friend's ty- old typewriters and get Shalom to mend them, because I was worried he'd retire. <laughs> so, I was trying to keep him working. But basically, when, when wireless broadband came in, I realized it was a real problem for writers. Mm-hmm. And I, I still believe this, actually. Because if you're sitting at the computer and you think to yourself, she drove a Morris Traveller, and you think, I know what a Morris Traveller is like, it's one of those weird little half timbered cars, like a <laughs> suburban semi that's somehow being mobilized. I remember them from my childhood. But then you think to yourself, I'll just have a quick look at a Morris Traveller. <laughs> 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 Millions of images of Morris Travellers. I'll find a really good image of a Morris Traveller. <laughs> Morris Traveller. I'll describe the image of the Morris Traveller, OK? I think social media has a lot to answer for, for the literalism of contemporary mm-hmm. fiction, for, the, for <laughs> the, the elevation of content over style. But I think the, the web has a huge amount to answer for as well. People aren't thinking in words anymore. You know, you were talking about this in an email the other day, and I agree with you. There's no poetry in prose anymore, because it's become a book of words for the web. It's become a set of instructions about how to describe a Morris Traveler that you've just Googled. That is not literature. It's
0: just a procedure, isn't it? It's a procedural reality in some sense. I guess so. So,
1: so I, I shifted to working on a, on a manual. Mm. I banned myself mm. from being online during, during writing periods. or write in the morning. I've always been a morning person. I can't do anything at night, except this sort of thing, um, <laughs> which is fine.
0: So what is it about the typewriter, though? Is it the friction? Is it the rhythm? My grandmother taught me to touch type when I was eight. And th- oh, that, for great. me, was the best thing anyone has ever done for me. And I swear that's why I'm a writer, because that kind of frenetic rhythm. I'm very <laughs> restless, um, visceral kind of person. That, that touch typing, I'm, and now my eyes are going as well, I can still type without seeing. And it's the best thing anyone ever did for me. And it's, it's like playing piano for me. So oh, that's magnificent.
1: Yeah. I, I hunt and peck after, after <laughs> what, what am I, 40 years as mm-hmm. a professional typist. Mm-hmm. or hunt and peck. So mm-hmm. it's not that. I think it, what it is, is after the computer, the extraordinary silence. Mm-hmm. You get the kind of paradiddle yeah. of a word. You yeah. And then there's just total silence. Mm-hmm. There's a lacuna. There's a gap. There's a fermata. Mm-hmm. You can think. Mm-hmm. The world recedes. And there's nothing beyond the instrument. I mean, I would write longhand, and yeah. indeed, the truth of the matter is, I've started to write yeah. drafts longhand even before I type them up. I'm a terrible writer. Mm-hmm. My writing—I can just about read my own writing, but it's a stretch. I can't read
0: my writing, so yeah. that's why I—it's hopeless. That yeah. that place cannot—you know—it's impossible. No, I do
1: write the drafts, and, and but but in longhand first mm-hmm. now, uh, and then I type them up on the manual, and then I read. The other thing is just. You know, you really, what are you doing when you write on a computer knowing how simple the erasure is? So you write, she wore a purple dress. And then you think, ah, not purple's a bit vivid for her. She's a sort of downtrodden provincial housewife. She would wear a pastel color. You just change it instantly, right? If you write on a typewriter or you write longhand, you sit there and you think: Is the dress purple or is it pastel? And you make a decision. So it's simply a question of where you do your thinking. Do you do your thinking on the screen, or you do it mm-hmm. in your mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, thinking on the screen is social media. Mm-hmm. Thinking on the screen, you know, Wordsworth said that the poetry was emotion recollected in tranquility, and social media is emotion confected. In instantaneity. <laughs> <laughs> she said that, the bitch! <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. what's that about? So, you know, it, it's a, it's, it becomes plainer. There's mm-hmm. a horrible Elysian mm-hmm. here between trying to write seriously and this awful world of errant bullshit yeah. that has gripped humanity.
0: Whilst it's pretending to be more sincere, isn't it? it takes It takes pride in this idea of sincerity but there's no thinking time at all. Just, can we ask, can we allow a a few questions maybe? Just one. Just one. (laughs) Let's have another question. Let's have another question. We need a microphone, we might need a mic, but I think we can hear. Yes, can you just shout out?
1: Hello, yeah, just a really simple one. You referred to earlier about not finishing books. You have about 150 on the go or whatever. Uh, Why do I feel terrible when I don't finish a book, which is more often than not these days? I don't know, maybe because you you carry with you some kind of, I don't know, I mean you carry with you some kind of punitive upbringing, some kind of (laughs) internalized negative superego that's compounded of, I mean judging from your accent you might even have gone to a prep school of some kind. Actually, the rest is right. (laughs) But whatever, you know, it may not be a class thing, but you've internalized some kind of judgmental voice that says you're less than if you don't finish a book. But you know, if you're reading a shit book, (laughs) then it makes you better to not read it. Not worse. Do you ever feel bad for not finishing a book? Well, I just sort of, you know, I remember, th- I can't remember which of those sort of stupid questionnaires there is in the newspapers where they say, what's your guilty pleasure? <laughs> yeah? What's your guilty pleasure? In other words, you know, I secretly read <laughs> whatever it is. I don't have any guilty pleasures, you know? I have pleasures. If I want to read some, some, some crap, I read it, you know? I don't, and, it, and if I want to stop reading Heiner, I start reading high now it doesn 't kind of weigh on me like i mean where where's the project going for you <laughs> you know, 're a dreamer of a new dawn What, what <laughs> is that new dawn? one in which everybody 's read everything and is about a person and there, there's a sort of completism there's a plenitude <laughs> in the w- is that it well, yeah, when you 're in this shop, you get a sense of infinite infinite books yeah, you are never you 're going to die. But the fact that you finished the book won't keep you alive, you know. (laughs) It's the, you know, it's a magnificent book. And actually, I'd urge you to read it over and above anything by me called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And that's what you're suffering from. You seriously think if you finish a book, you won't die. (laughs) But you will.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Reading and dying.
1: Where is the great literature of today? Where is the water cooler moment when people stand around discussing a book that really matters to them? Where is the real influence? No, I think this is the 100th anniversary of the publication of Ulysses. There was all sorts of hoo-ha about how people were engaging with difficult modernist books through TikTok at the beginning of the year, and how whole people were committing, and there was a renaissance. Absolute arse swoggle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody who hasn't read Ulysses has read Ulysses this year and actually you know I don't want to kind of completely shit on my contemporaries who of course include Sally Um, I've read Ulysses yeah (laughs) no but I mean you know our works just do not have that traction you know the seminal moment for me I've been writing fiction for 30 years the seminal moment for me was I was I went out onto the balcony to have a smoke on a service department in Manchester I used to go up to Manchester to write to isolate I rent this service department. I went out onto the balcony, and a guy came out onto the balcony opposite me and lit up a fag. And he looked across, and he recognized me. And he went, oh my god, it's you. you I I used to be quite face famous, so I wasn't particularly surprised about that. But then he went on, and he said, do you know, I read a book that you wrote when I was a young man that had a profound effect on my life. Mm. My ego is going into kind of hyperdrive at this moment. <laughs> this is everything a writer ever dreams mm-hmm. of, right? You know, it was said that Arnold Bennett, the writer, who was a p- top writer in the 1900s, used to carry a 10-pound note in his wallet. Mm-hmm. Because if he was ever recognized and somebody ever spoke to him, he was going to give him the 10 pounds, which was a lot of money in the 1900s. That, that note stayed in his wallet. So I thought, I have arrived. Mm-hmm. This is it. I am minted. This is nothing. Posterity owes me nothing. I've arrived. I said, I said, well, you know, what was the book? Which was the book? And he went.
0: I couldn't remember. <laughs>
1: I said, I thought I'll let him off a bit. I said, I said well, can you give me the general outline of what? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but will the dumbing down is um, coming from? Every, I mean, it's coming from the top down. I mean, I, I listened into. I'm not going to mention any names, but I listened into the AGM of the Royal Society of Literature last summer.
1: Mention nine. <laughs> and
0: um, I was, it, was, it was dreadful to hear that one of the leading figures in that society was saying, thank goodness we're not promoting um, James Joyce in schools. You know, as though somehow 16, 17, 18-year-olds can't manage the music. Of James Joyce you know the lyricism of him at least even if they don't know all of the historical history of, um, of Ireland you know, I just I just didn't know what to. Th- I didn't say anything oh, but I was okay, horrified. But we are, we've got
1: to be careful here you know I'm a, when yeah. I went to university here by the way 8% uh, of the adult population went to university now it's 50% mm-hmm. okay so let's not is this not the brave new world that people dreamt of mm-hmm. is it not a world in which a university education is open to all. Is it not a world in which we can accept some kind of democratization? Do we not hear some of John Kerry's arguments in the intellectuals and the masses that in a way modernism itself was a rearguard action against you know, mass and popular culture in that way? Do we not accept that? No, we don't actually. If I could, I, I can't get my students to read if I hold a gun to their head. It's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. It's an absolute Mm -hmm. nightmare. And they're not stupid. Mm -hmm. They're actually quite bright. The truth of the matter is 50% of the people Mm -hmm. in this country do not want Mm -hmm. a degree of that kind or to do that kind of studying. Mm -hmm. And I blame Tony Blair. I blame him for everything. I was thinking about Tony Blair on the way here and how much I hate Tony (laughs) Blair. (laughs) And I was thinking about how much I hate Ewan Blair, his son. (laughs) I was thinking that this hatred is dynastic. There's a succession there. You know, and and Ewan Blair is apparently a sort of millionaire of some sort of bogus educational enterprise. I thought, actually, I've stopped hating Tony so much. Most of that hatred has gone on to Ewan now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But there is a problem with everyone, 50% going to university, yes, but that's another whole subject, but I agree it's a problem. Yes, go ahead. Tell us your name. Uh, Katie. 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 Um, I have a 12-year-old daughter. I have. The I, I'm sorry for your pain. <laughs> I, have, I have the um, opposite problem to most parents because I can't get her to look at a phone, and I can't get her to stop reading books. Um, but her books are progressively more well. She's kind of worked through everything a 12-year-old, even a 15-year-old might. So she's going on to some more adult stuff. And I was wondering if there's anything you think that a young person shouldn't read.
1: No No, not really. I mean, I, th- I, I think again, it's a problem of context. I mean, I grew up. My brother and I found a book in a hedge called "42 Inches Plus" <laughs> that was a picture of, of, of women with very large breasts. That was our most treasured possession <laughs> for about a decade. I mean, you could, I mean you literally did look in the National Geographic to see what people looked like in the nude. You know Leslie Phillips, the, the doyen of the Carry On films, died the other day. That was, that was the culture I grew up in. And when, when I read something that was kind of obscene or difficult or strange, or particularly things, because what you get in literature, w- w- uh, serious literature, which is why it's such a great art form, is, is you get stuff that's genuinely disturbing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I just couldn't comprehend it. I had no context within which to understand it and I would just put it to one side or I'd plow on with it relentlessly. Mm. I read a lot of stuff aged 12. I read Catch-22 for the first mm. time when I was 12. Mm. I didn't really understand it. Mm. It's pretty dark, a lot of it. Uh, no, I wouldn't worry about, but, but no, I, I, I suppose what I'm saying is your problem is as long as she stays off the phone and, and the mm. she's got no context. But if she, ha- if she starts watching Love Island, then I would start worrying. Because you know her kind of capacity, then she might be bothered by the literature she's reading. But I- if there's no contextualization of it, she's—it's ju- going to resist her too much. I don't know how you've managed to have this wunderkind. What's I she know, reading? Say, What's you, she reading? Yeah. I mean, how did you pull this off?
0: George Orwell. George Orwell. Oh, and, um, <coughs> she, she, she loves a bookshop in London called Gaze the Word. Oh yeah, very <laughs> famous. It's the one that uh, it's uh,
1: a. <laughs> Up, gay yeah, I, I, I know. Gay's the word. It, it's just up from the Brunswick mm-hmm. Centre. Just, yeah, by Russell Square. Very mm-hmm. famous. It features in that film where the gay mm-hmm. activists go to help the the, the miners during the miners' strike. Mm. I don't know what to say. I'm just jealous. You know, I mean, you could, I mean, wh- a couple of my kids have are reasonable readers. I mean, they're well, th- they're reasonable, but none of them are voracious readers. I don't feel any of them are kind of. They're not invested in the reading I, the way I was mm-hmm. as a kid. I mean, they're all adults now. Uh, so tedious. <laughs> Another as question. Well done. <laughs> Another
0: question. Maybe one more question.
1: What do you think of my- Hi. So um, I was just struck by um, how often you were speaking about um, children or about your relationship with children um, and, and being a father. I, I wonder if you've ever tried to write as a mother, or as a in that kind of mode. And, and Yeah, I've written in a female persona quite a lot, actually. And in, in, in some ways, the two novels of mine that I think I probably am most invested in, Umbrella and Shark, both feature female protagonists. Well, or How the Dead Live, which features a, a mother who's reincarnated as her own daughter. You couldn't get more, and, and also features a, a, a mother who who has, uh, is, is haunted by what's called a lithopedian, a calcified embryo that's died in utero, that re-emerges in the Bardo state after death. You couldn't get more mothery <laughs> than that, could you? <laughs> really? No, I don't, I don't have a particular... What, what my problem is, is that I had my first child when I was 26. Mm. I had my last child when I was 40. Uh, I, I had children for the, you know, I had, I, I had an, a child under five, from 1990 to 2006, for 16 years, it's been a major thing of my life, and I bitterly resent the top line of contemporary discourse that, that you know that suggests that men are not invested in childcare. It really fucking infuriates me, and you know uh, uh, that's all. Uh, and I, and I, and as a man who's been you know very much involved in in childcare and bringing up children, because I didn't have anything else to do. Apart from write stupid books, <laughs> you know, and and the great advantage of being a writer is that you can be there. I used to take the kids to school and I pick them up from school mm-hmm. after school, so you can be there for them. So I, I bitterly resent the kind of that kind of narrative of the idea that men are somehow not invested mm-hmm. in in parenting in quite the same way, or, or kind of, and and I think it's a function of everything we know. It's a function of, but. Uh, I'm just not interested in that. I was analysed by Adam Phillips. It was, I want my money back. (laughs) Um.
0: (laughs) Okay, I think it might be time to uh, wrap things (laughs) up (laughs) with that little little passing remark. Um, Please do come and buy a book, okay? Um, Wine costs far more than books, all right? Yeah, I used to, um, it's true, it's true. I used to volunteer in the only remaining independent bookshop, apart from Blackwell's in Oxford, in Jericho, the Albion bookshop. My friend Dennis ran it. I, I used to run tutorials there. It was part of my life, and then it closed down because, n- because everybody went and bought wine in the wine bar opposite, um, at, which was very expensive. So please buy a book and read it, Okay.
1: Wow, that was impassioned, (laughs) but, you know, I kind of, it's very interesting. I've finally been reviewing some fiction the last month or so. I've been writing a long review piece on a Romanian writer called Macio Cartaresco, who's got a novel called Solenoid coming out. Fantastic novel, he wrote it in 2017. I urge you to read it. But, you know, he, he, writing from a post-Soviet perspective, you know, he criticizes the literary world a great deal. He calls fiction writers, he says, fiction writers just paint trompe-l'oeil doors on the walls of reality and then expect you to walk through them. But what he doesn't get is the extraordinary commoditization mm. of literature in our culture. It's all about pushing product. It's all about selling stuff. And thank you, Sarah. Will, That's very kind of We you. need to push Do a book. Do buy a book. <laughs> you don't have to buy my book. Buy another book if you feel
0: like it. Buy Will's Buy, book. buy Will's book. Buy don't Zayn. listen to him. Okay. (laughs) All right, thank you very much for coming and please stay behind and buy books and speak to Will. Thank you for your questions and thank you for your time. And James, thank you for asking us here and thank you to Will.